Good afternoon. We are here for the second half of our oral argument calendar today. The matter that is before us now is in uh, Ray Patricia Chastain. As stated previously, I'm Judge April Wood, and to my right is Judge Jefferson Griffin. To my left is Judge Julie Flood. And if counsel is ready, we are ready to hear from the appellant. Counsel, have you already reserved time for rebuttal? Yes, seven minutes. All right. Thank you. Good afternoon. May it please the court. Uh, I'm Matt Ballou from the Wake County Bar, and I, I represent Patricia Chastain in this appeal. I would like to reserve seven minutes for rebuttal, as noted. And, Your Honors, when this case began, it was about the legal standards necessary to remove an elected clerk of court from office. On remand, and today, before this panel, it is a very different case, and it is a much broader case. This case now asks the central question of what conduct qualifies as being, quote, adjudged guilty of corruption or malpractice, end quote, under Article VI, Section 8 of the North Carolina Constitution, that, if found, shall permanently disqualify any citizen from holding any elected office across the entire state for the rest of their lives. The importance of this court's decision on whether to affirm the trial court's order, it simply cannot be overstated. We just heard arguments uh, in a very interesting DWI case. Uh, the attorneys did an excellent job of distinguishing the facts of those cases, whether uh, the facts of a particular case rise to the level of a, of a proper DWI. This court's decision here in the Chastain case will reverberate across the state. People will distinguish the facts of the Chastain case in asking what conduct is egregious enough or not to bar a citizen from ever holding any elected office again. And it's not just the office of clerk, the governor, attorney general, senators, judges, representatives, county commissioners, mayors, any elected office. For that reason, I would like to focus the majority of my time with you on what I submit is the most important point that I can address with the court. And that is, what is this legal standard of being adjudged guilty of corruption or malpractice under the Constitution? And why do we contend that the trial court erred in finding that any of the evidence of any of the acts by Ms. Chastain could ever rise to that most egregious level? We made significant argument in our brief uh, as to why many of the trial court's factual findings are not supported by clear and convincing evidence, which is the standard of review on the facts of the case. We stand on our briefs on those arguments. I'm happy to discuss any of that if the court has any questions about it. If not, we stand on the briefs on that point, on the factual review part. But I would like to focus the majority of the time on this legal standard. And it is confusing uh, if you have just jumped into these muddy waters. We have been living and breathing uh, this for years now, but it goes over decades of case law. And uh, this case is a case of first impression. However, it draws on decades of case law involving removal of judges, removal of district attorneys. Uh, so I would like to 
explain our position on that to the court. And I, I'm a visual person, and I envision a hierarchy of conduct at issue. The lowest form of conduct at the bottom of the hierarchy is a phrase that you undoubtedly have seen in the briefs and in the cases. It's called conduct prejudicial to the administration of justice, which brings the office into disrepute. So to shorten that, I'm just going to refer to it as conduct prejudicial. This is the lowest form of conduct on the hierarchy that can be wrong conduct uh, that a reviewing body may wish to take some action about for uh, a judge or for a district attorney. You find it in the general statutes about removal of judges, 7A-376. You find it in the statute about removal of district attorneys, 7A-66. You also find it in the state constitution um, where it references removal of judges. Notably, there is no such standard for removal of clerks. But it is important to understand this standard because as you rise up the hierarchy, that is the only way you can know what conduct rises, could ever rise to this highest standard of corruption or malpractice under Article 6 of our Constitution. And I would like to point out, Your Honors, that on remand, uh, in the first Chastain opinion, I'll refer to that as Chastain 1, uh, that on remand, this court made clear that Judge Locke lacked the authority to sanction Ms. Chastain in any way under Article 6 for any acts which did not rise to the level of corruption or malpractice. That's at paragraph 31 of the Chastain 1 opinion. So it's important for us to understand what can rise up through this hierarchy. So if we start at conduct prejudicial, that refers to unintentional wrongful conduct that a judicial official may engage in. Negligent conduct. Conduct where the official is simply ignorant of the law, ignorant of the scope of their authority. Lack of diligence. Errors in judgment. Errors in oversight. The cases refer to it sometimes as the actor is acting in good faith. They're wanting to do the right thing, but they are mistaken about their authority. They're wrong, and the conduct they did is wrongful conduct, but they, they had good motivations and good intent, unintentional conduct. That in some ways could be prejudicial, bring the office into disrepute. We know that from cases such as the N. Ray Knoll case, N. Ray Edens, N. Ray Peoples. A judge cannot be removed from office under any of the statutes or the constitutional provisions for conduct prejudicial uh, that is decided uh, by our North Carolina Supreme Court. That's the lowest form. You move up the hierarchy to the second category of willful misconduct. And it may be obvious by the name what separates us here to this higher category, but it involves the mental state of the actor, willful misconduct. We know from our North Carolina Supreme Court that willful misconduct is, as a matter of law, it is per se more reprehensible conduct than conduct prejudicial to the administration of justice. It requires that the actor act intentionally, knowingly, and generally with bad faith intent. That comes straight from the N. Ray Edens case. So it's not enough just to intentionally act, to intend to do it and intend some result. The actor also has to knowingly act. And our case law tells us that knowingly here means you have to know that what you're doing 
violates your authority. You have to know that you should not be doing it. The simple act itself, you know it is wrong, and you do it anyway. And generally, it must be done with a bad faith intent. What does that mean? Some intent to receive a material benefit that you, you should not receive and you should not be entitled to. An obvious example would be money. Uh, taking money uh, for violating the law in some way, which would clearly be corrupt, clearly be willful misconduct. In the Chastain One opinion, this court took the time to tell the trial court and to tell us, remind us, that the word willfully under North Carolina law is significant. It is used in many criminal statutes, and it means, quote, something more than an intention to, com to commit the offense. It implies committing the offense purposely and designedly in violation of law. That's at paragraph 31 of Chastain 1, quoting State versus Stevenson, North Carolina Supreme Court case. That is really bad conduct, uh, Your Honors. Willful misconduct is really bad conduct. That's why it's higher than conduct prejudicial and in this second tier. Now the case law tells us that there is a way that conduct prejudicial can rise to the level of willful misconduct. But the only way that can happen is if the conduct at issue is, quote, knowingly and persistently repeated by the actor. And done so at a time where the actor either knew or should have known that it was wrongful conduct. This comes from case after case after case. The most notable one uh, is the N. Ray Peoples case. It has a very in-depth discussion of that concept. But that's the only time that the lower standard of conduct can rise up to willful misconduct, if that conduct at issue is knowingly and persistently repeated. And of course, it has to be the same conduct at issue. Otherwise, you cannot knowingly persist in bad conduct, again, knowing requires that you have knowledge that what you are doing is in violation of the law. There is no case. My, my opponents cannot cite a case, either in the first appeal or today, cannot cite a case in which our appellate courts have ever found that separate, disconnected, isolated events that do not rise to the level by themselves of willful misconduct can be commingled or lumped together and converted into a finding of willful misconduct. All of the cases that reference conduct prejudicial rising to the level of willful misconduct is when the same bad conduct is knowingly and persistently repeated. And it is our position that is a requirement of the law. So that is willful misconduct. In the first case, Chastain 1, Everyone agreed that the issue there was whether the evidence at the trial against Ms. Chastain could ever support a finding that she acted at that level of willful misconduct. Well, what this court has now instructed us is that that is not the standard that Judge Locke had the authority to apply, that Judge Locke lacked any authority to offer any sanction or order any sanction against Ms. Chastain for even a finding of willful misconduct. Instead, the only authority that he had to enter any type of sanction against Ms. Chastain is under the highest level of the hierarchy, the third and highest level, which comes from Article 6 of the Constitution, Section 8. This is the disqualification from office provision of our Constitution, as I mentioned. We know from Chastain 1 
that the conduct at that level is per se, as a matter of law, more reprehensible than even willful misconduct. At paragraph 31 of the Chastain opinion, this court made clear that the language adjudged guilty of corruption or malpractice in the Constitution includes, quote, at a minimum, acts of willful misconduct which are egregious in nature as those in Peoples, the In Re Peoples case, which I'll discuss momentarily. This court said, further, we construe the language willful misconduct uh, in the context of an Article VI hearing, which is what Judge Locke was ordered to do on remand, an Article VI hearing, to include only those acts of willful misconduct which rise to the level of corruption or malpractice in office. And there is a word here that I believe my opponents respectfully do not pay any attention to, but is critically important. And that is the word guilty, being adjudged guilty. That is what our Constitution says, adjudged guilty of corruption or malpractice. So what does that mean? Well, thankfully, the North Carolina Supreme Court has told us in Ray Peoples, analyzed that question uh, and said that guilty is an element, is a key element here. Guilty means, quote, evil, intentional wrongdoing, and refers to conscious and culpable acts. That's at page 165 of the published uh, opinion for the Peoples case. Peoples interestingly explained to us that it didn't always say the word adjudged, or the phrase adjudged guilty. In 1971, there was an amendment to this uh, constitutional provision. Prior to that, it actually did say convicted of corruption or malpractice in office. And as Peoples explained, that required that there actually be criminal charges brought against the person and that a conviction results, either through a plea, uh, a plea of guilty and a conviction or a criminal trial where the jury convicts the uh, actor. The change in the Constitution to the phrase adjudged guilty, uh, Peoples makes clear, it didn't lower that standard in any way away from really, really egregious criminal conduct. Instead, what it allowed our courts to do is adjudge someone, make a decision against someone that they are guilty outside of a criminal, uh, pending criminal charge and criminal case. For example, cases of judge removal that come up through the Judicial Standards Commission and then are reviewed by our Supreme Court. There, there may be no criminal charges brought at all, but if there is a judicial determination that those acts qualify as being guilty of corruption or malpractice, then that is enough to satisfy this constitutional standard. So, Your Honors, that's the hierarchy here. That's the framework uh, in which Judge Locke was required to reanalyze this entire case. Before this court, it's a de novo question. The court can and should disregard any of Judge Locke's conclusions of law as to whether any of the facts in the case qualified as being a judge guilty of corruption or malpractice and has to answer that question de novo here. <clears throat> so, with that framework in mind, our very strong position, our argument is that the incidents at issue cannot, as a matter of law, rise to this extraordinarily high, the highest standard to disqualify any citizen from holding any office ever again. And I can walk through the reasons, uh, Your Honors, through each of these incidents at issue. I would note many of the 
incidents. Many of the allegations have been completely dropped um, by the affiant and his counsel in this case. They were involved in the prior appeal. You may have seen evidence of uh, smoothie coupons being handed out, introducing a judicial candidate when he walked through uh, the courtroom to a jury pool, uh, several others. They have been disregarded now. They're not a part of Judge Locke's order. The only issues that are a part of his order are as follows, and I'll give argument as to each one. Let's start with the phone call to Magistrate Arnold, the Chief Magistrate. How do we know that this cannot be, even on the facts, in the light most favorable to my opponents, how do we know that this cannot rise to that highest level of guilty of corruption or malpractice? Well, first of all, it is undisputed that the phone call at issue is an unintentional call. There's a phrase in modern parlance for that type of call on your cell phone. Uh, you might call it a rear end dial. Um, it is an unintentional phone call, number one. You can't even rise to the middle level of the hierarchy to willful misconduct unless you can show intentional knowing misuse of the office. This is an unintentional rear end dial to Magistrate Arnold. That's number one. Number two, this is a phone call, the first phone call, uh, as well as the second phone call, in which Ms. Chastain, uh, even on the facts most favorable to the affiant, had an argument, you might say, a heated exchange with her peer, Magistrate Arnold, about why is nobody in the magistrate's office? It is required by law that the magistrate's office be staffed 24 hours a day, seven days a week for citizens who require it. This is a peer-to-peer -peer conversation. Ms. Chastain, on their facts, uh, was upset. Magistrate Arnold didn't want to talk to her uh, with her being upset and said, if you have any problems, you need to call Judge Davis to complain. Well, what do we know? Why would a clerk of court have any interest or right to engage in such a call? Well, number one, it is undisputed that the entire reason she was involved is because a group of citizens reached out to her asked her for help because no one would offer them help at the magistrate's office. This isn't intentional intermeddling through her own choices and devices and things like that. Citizens begged her to please help. Can you please help get in contact and get us a magistrate, number one. But number two, a clerk of superior court has the statutory duty to nominate the magistrates for appointment and renominate magistrates for appointment that are then chosen by the chief judge in the district. As the statute, which is 7A171, makes clear, the appointing judge cannot select anyone to be a magistrate unless they are on the list of individuals that the clerk of superior court nominates. I would argue, Your Honors, that the statutory duty to nominate and renominate magistrates carries with it the duty, carries with it the responsibility to be aware of what type of job are they are they who doing? Super, who your, supervises the magistrates? It's not the clerk, is it? The clerk does not supervise the magistrates. Okay. No, that is the chief judge in the district. Uh, who's, which is why Magistrate Arnold said, if you, if you would like to lodge a complaint against me, call, call Judge Davis, John Davis, the Chief District Court Judge. But while that is true, Your Honor, 
that Ms. Chastain doesn't supervise the magistrates. She does have a duty to nominate them, and I would argue that carries with it the duty to at least be advised about what they are doing, to know if they're doing a good job, to know if you should reappoint them. At, at, a, at its worst, this would be a, an instance where an elected clerk believes, honestly believes, I'll wait momentarily, honestly believes that this is part of her duty and part of her job. If you have an honest... She didn't know that she does not supervise magistrates. I don't know the answer to that from the record, but, Your Honor, I would, I would say that Ms. Chastain knows that. And even if a clerk knows that, that doesn't mean that she was doing any type of improper conduct and having this phone, phone call to say, where are you, what's going on? Now, there is the issue of the curse word being used in the second unintentional phone call. But didn't the magistrate testify he didn't really know what was said? He just knew that word was used? He, exactly. He testified he does not know what was said. He gave three statements which he could not say which one was said or not. One of them, I won't repeat the word, we'll say F word. One of the statements that Magistrate Arnold said, it could have been this statement, was a statement, F word, comma, I'm not calling John Davis. It just cannot be, Your Honors, that using a curse word, even if in the presence of members of the public, friends, citizens who have come to you for help, that using a curse word in the same sentence as you referring to one of your peers, a, an elected official, or in this case, a judge, is rises to the level of being guilty of corruption or malpractice in office. And that is exactly what Judge Locke's order found, that her use of vulgarity in the presence of the public and her phone call to Magistrate Arnold, his conclusion of law is that alone rose all the way to disqualifying a citizen from ever holding any elected office again by itself. That just cannot be the law of this state. If so, it would open up immeasurable floodgates against every elected official. By the way, there's also no evidence of any harm caused to any member of the public. The people that heard the curse word are people who were already angered and upset with the magistrate's office for not even being there when they're supposed to be there. Next, and I'll move through as quickly as I can. The, I, on the yes, sir. On the order, you know, it said, Patricia Burnett Chastain is permanently disqualified from serving in the office of the clerk of Superior Court in Franklin County. Yes. So it's your, it's your position under, the, under Article 6 that she's disqualified from any office ever again. That's absolutely correct, and we know that to be the case, uh, Judge Griffin, because if you look at Article 6, Section 8, it says any individual who has been adjudged guilty of corruption or malpractice and in the office shall, the word is shall, be disqualified under that section. If affirmed, if Judge Locke's order is affirmed, there are multiple judicial findings, judicial conclusions, that she has engaged in conduct which is corruption or malpractice under Article 6. It does not matter that Judge Locke at the very last sentence said 
she's disqualified from holding the office of clerk. She is now, by virtue of this constitutional provision, barred from holding any office, any elected office in the state for the rest of her life. Yes, I don't want to eat too much into your rebuttal time, but there is a lot of case law that talks about what constitutes corruption, but very little that talks about malpractice. Yes. And so I would like to hear from you what you believe that standard is. Yes. Very well noted. We ran into the same issues as I tried to explain this the best I could in the briefs. There is no crime that we can find uh, being guilty of malpractice. So the best analog I can give the court, are, are, well, it's two of them. There is a crime. It's 14-230 uh, of the criminal statutes. That's called willful failure to discharge duties in office. Uh, interestingly, one of the criminal punishments there is removal from that office if found guilty. That crime requires criminal intent. Uh, it requires knowing misuse of the office, and it requires injury to the public. So we can take some guidance from that crime. Of course, Ms. Chastain's never been charged with anything. Uh, the other analog I could give the court that may offer some guidance is the civil claim of professional malpractice. We see it with medical malpractice, attorney malpractice. That claim also requires not only proof that there was a standard of care that was owed and violated, but that it proximately caused harm. I would say that at a minimum, at a minimum, we know that malpractice has to be higher than willful misconduct here. So it has to be intentional, knowing misuse of the office. It has to have a bad faith intent. But in order for it to be egregious enough to rise to that level, it's got to be especially harmful conduct, criminal conduct, where you are guilty of it, and it causes actual demonstrable material harm to the public. I can see I'm into my rebuttal time. Um, I'm happy to answer any other questions, but I would like to re reserve some time for rebuttal, whatever is remaining. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. All right, so we will now hear from the appellee. <clears throat> May it please the court. My name is Kip Nelson, here with Boyd Sturgis. I represent the Athean appellee, Jeffrey Thompson. Your Honors, this case is important. Um, Mr. Blue is 100% correct when he talks about the fact that this is a serious matter and a somber matter. But the, the factual argument that we just heard over the past few minutes is divorced from the realities of this case. Here, the key players in the Franklin County judicial system presented evidence that the clerk of court had committed misconduct. Those witnesses from both parties included the chief district court judge, the chief magistrate, the district attorney, the sheriff, a member of the bar, and members of the public. Ms. Chastain presented zero witnesses in her own behalf. A neutral fact finder heard all of the evidence and determined that Ms. Chastain had in fact engaged in misconduct and should be permanently removed from the office of Franklin County Clerk of Court. It wasn't some of that testimony that was given, testimony about acts that were not alleged in the affidavit itself? That is correct, Judge Wood. And, and as Your Honor knows, in the original opinion in this case, the court addressed that issue and said, the trial court is not allowed to remove an official from office based on acts that are not alleged in the charging affidavit. However, this court also said that a court can consider those acts in, in assessing the respondent's credibility, which is precisely what Judge Locke said he did here. And speaking of the affidavit that started it all, um, didn't the affiant 
swear that he had personal knowledge of the acts contained in the affidavit and then later questioned at trial admitted that a lot of the information he had was based on hearsay and he didn't actually have personal knowledge of those incidents? He, the, the affidavit's clear that some things were based on personal knowledge, but also there were statements upon information and belief. So it was not only based on his viewing of the body-worn camera footage, which was where he was personally involved, but also upon information and belief. And of course, the affidavit was the initiating document, right? The, the indictment or the complaint in the civil context. It was the document that got it started. The evidence is what Judge Locke based his decision on. In fact, Judge Locke even said that the original suspension order was based on erroneous grounds for suspension. So even Judge Locke recognized that there was an issue at the beginning of the case. But when it came to the final order, the final judgment, that was based on the evidence that had been presented at trial. So she was erroneously removed at the beginning. And then the, the order, original order of Judge Locke was vacated and remanded. Wasn't there some harm to Ms. Chastain? And how can that be corrected? So erroneously suspended, Judge Wood, is that what you were saying? I, yes. I mean, that, the suspension order has never been challenged since it was entered in July 2020. So that, that order has stood and will stand as far as, I mean, unless there's some other appellate proceeding to get rid of it, that order's still in place. And you're correct, in, in the appeal, Judge Locke's original order was vacated and remanded in light of the legal standard that this court announced. So the, the question of whether conduct constitutes willful misconduct that's egregious in nature, that was what Judge Locke was ordered to decide. I'm, I was a little surprised to hear the argument today that we're here to decide the legal standard because under in-race civil penalty, this court has already announced the legal standard. That question's already been answered. In addition, this court in its opinion said there was evidence in the record that could support Judge Locke's determination. So the question of sufficiency of the evidence was also answered. The only question on appeal is whether the trial court's amended order, the findings of fact are supported by the evidence and those findings support the conclusions. The, the fundamental problem with Ms. Chastain's argument is that it seeks an appellate do-over. It asks this court to reweigh the evidence and make new credibility determinations and draw new inferences. But of course, that's not how the appellate process works. We leave it to the finders of fact to make those determinations. But didn't the prior order or opinion from this court say, perhaps maybe if some of the acts were willful misconduct, um, they may or may not be, but that Judge Locke didn't have the authority to remove her for willful misconduct under Article 4, that Article 6 requires willful misconduct that is egregious in nature as such as in Ray Peoples. That, that is exactly right. This court said that the original order was unclear whether Judge Locke had applied the appropriate legal standard. And so this court laid out the standard and sent it back and said, please apply the standard. You are to determine, Judge Locke, under Article 6, whether the evidence that you received constitutes corruption or malpractice in office or willful misconduct that is egregious in nature, however phrased. That's precisely what Judge Locke did in his order. He determined that four separate instances each independently constituted willful misconduct that was egregious in nature. He also said that the cumulative- So a phone call, would you contend that a phone call that by the testimony of the magistrate wasn't really sure what was said, that if you use a curse word constitutes egregious conduct that would warrant someone being removed from office? So 
to be clear, and so the short answer is yes, Your Honor, and if I could explain why, the, the statement that this was unintentional only refers to the second phone call. The first phone call was entirely intentional, and the reason that Judge Locke found it was egregious, this is on page 165 of the record. So a phone call asking where a magistrate is and why the office is not manned, you would contend was enough to remove an elected clerk from office. If that were the only thing that she had said, no. But of course that's not all that happened. And framing it in those terms would be um, discrediting the testimony that's in the record. In fact, what Judge Locke said was that she made the phone call with the intent to undermine the public's respect for Judge Davis and Mr. Arnold and for their judicial authority. Of course, she didn't just ask, why isn't the magistrate's um, office open? So if a judge doesn't like what another judge has done and goes down the hall and says, I think Judge John Smith is an idiot, then that would be enough in your mind, or if a clerk says, I think that that judge is an idiot, would be enough in your mind to remove an elected official from office? I well, two things, Judge Wood. I would say, first of all, it's up to the fact finder, right? So it would, it would not be me. It would be up to the fact finder who is assessing credibility and looking at the totality of the circumstances. But to answer your specific hypothetical, no, simply criticizing another participant in the judicial system would presumably not be enough. But again, the, the phone call here, the record shows, she not only called the chief magistrate to ask why isn't the office open, and he said, of course there's a magistrate on call, you see that on the door, right? And she knew how to get in contact with the magistrate. She said, in front of members of the public, you are, not doing, you are not doing your job, and if you don't send a magistrate down here right now, I'm gonna give out your personal phone number to members of the public. Of course, the only reason she had his personal phone number was in her capacity as clerk of court. So threatening another member of the judicial system um, because you disagree with the way that he or she is approaching his or her duties, yes, Judge Wood, I would say that could constitute willful misconduct that's egregious in nature. Again, the, the intent element here was important. That was what the fact finder was in place to decide. The intent to undermine not only Magistrate Arnold, but also in the subsequent phone call the chief district court judge. It wasn't just in passing F. John Davis, right? It was the magistrate who had said, if you have a problem, contact your supervisor, who is the chief district court judge. And she, to members of the public, said, I'm not, the, the magistrate's not doing anything, and then something F. John Davis. Or F. I'm not calling John Davis, or there were a lot of words there, weren't there? Correct. And that's why that's notable because Judge Locke recognized that the exact words didn't matter. It was the intent that the Magistrate Arnold conveyed in the hearing that was relevant to him. So to answer your question, yes, that was an independent basis um, that Judge Locke found constituted willful misconduct that was egregious in nature, therefore was corruption or malpractice in the office. Of course, that was one of several. So I know Mr. Ballou didn't talk about it, um, but just to run through briefly, another was Ms. Chastain's interaction with the members of the public um, at their property. She first visited a woman named Ann Gaydon and gave her advice on the law and said that she was there to mediate. And then she went to other people's homes, Mr. and Mrs. Diaz, and told them she was obligated by law to mediate their case. 
that Judge Davis legally couldn't enter the orders he had and that she was going to enter an order that day. So that was a separate instance of willful misconduct that was egregious in nature. It, if the court could imagine a, a clerk of this court going to someone's home and having an oral argument and then coming back to the court and entering an order without telling any of the judges, I would submit that would be a problem and that individual would no longer serve in clerk capacity in this court. But our clerks aren't elected officials and Ms. Chastain isn't elected or was an elected official. That's, that's certainly true and as Mr. Ballou pointed out, the Constitution just says disqualification from office. I did want to address a question, Judge Griffin, about whether the, the scope of the order, Judge Locke was very specific that he was permanently disqualifying Ms. Chastain from serving as the Franklin County Clerk of Court. And this court, in its previous opinion, said that the greater authority includes the lesser. This is in paragraphs 25 and 26 of the, the Court of Appeals opinion. So Judge Locke could have issued a broader order, but he didn't. He specifically said she was disqualified from serving in the Franklin County Clerk of Court. And of course, that was based on the harm that she had caused in the Franklin County judicial system. It was limited to that and the relationships that she had destroyed because of her misconduct. The, another instance was Ms. Chastain's interference in an ongoing criminal proceeding. Right? The, the picture painted in the brief is that she simply was trying to fulfill her duty to complete an affidavit of indigency. That's, that's one story. Of Judge Locke credited another story that was presented in the trial, which was that she was fully aware counsel had been appointed. She knew a first appearance had already been conducted. She went to the jail to get involved in a high-profile case, and because of her conduct, the sheriff banned her from ever attending the jail again. So that was a different story. The findings of factor in the record, and Judge Locke determined that that was also sufficiently egregious, willful misconduct. The fourth thing that Judge Locke found was the state audit. And Ms. Chastain, in her brief, points out that there was no determination of embezzlement, that she hadn't stolen any money. But there were findings by the auditor that funds had been mishandled, and Judge Locke determined that that was sufficiently egregious, and her lack of explanation and lack of oversight of her office constituted willful misconduct. So each of those four was an independent basis in Judge Locke's mind. In addition, the trial court made an additional conclusion that the cumulative effect of her conduct was also independently willful misconduct that was egregious in nature. So to reiterate a point that was made in the briefs, to prevail on appeal, Ms. Chastain would have to convince this court that the trial court erred in all five of those rulings. As Judge Wood may remember, there was a question in the first appeal of whether the trial court considered each independent act to be sufficient. Well, that was now clarified in the amended order. It's very clear that he considered all four of those acts to independently warrant removal from office, as well as the cumulative effect of her conduct. Have we ever held that an elected official of any kind could be disqualified from office under Article VI upon less egregious acts that are than are alleged here? I'm sorry, could you ask that question again? Well, I mean, have we ever held in the state of North Carolina that an elected official 
any elected official could be removed from office for less egregious acts than are alleged here under Article 6 of the Constitution. I, I mean, we've got Ray Peoples, Ray Martin, I mean, in those, we're talking about very egregious acts. Here, these acts don't seem to rise to the level of the acts in Ray Martin or Ray Peoples. So how, are you aware of any case that you can base your position on that these acts in and of themselves were egregious enough to be for the clerk to be removed under Article 6, the condition that the conduct, willful misconduct, that is egregious in nature, that amounts to corruption or malpractice in office, that do you have any cases to support your position? So I will say that fortunately, these cases don't come up very often. Most of the members who serve in our judicial system and in public office generally are doing a good job. And so these cases don't arise very often. There are, of course, judicial standards cases that arise under the Supreme, the Supreme Court's jurisdiction. Um, so, you know, bad from an appellate perspective, but good from a public policy perspective is the fact that there isn't much case law out there, which is why our brief, of course, cited two cases from other jurisdictions dealing with clerks specifically and the type of conduct that would warrant removal. But I would say, Judge Wood, in answer to your question, the district attorney cases, I would say, are at least um, appropriate to review by analogy. So in in-race Spivey, for example, a district attorney was, after hours, making racial slurs. And is that, is that more egregious? I mean, I guess that, I, I would say that's debatable. Obviously, all of these questions are fact-dependent, so I don't, I don't frankly know how you determine which is more egregious. Um, and the other case, of course, is in Ray Klein, where a district attorney was criticizing a member of the judiciary and used some bad language, um, in very colorful and inappropriate language. Was that more egregious? I, I mean, I, I think reasonable minds could differ on that. The, of course, the unique nature of the clerk is also important to remember. So corruption and malpractice in the office depends on the office that we're talking about. Judges have certain roles. Judges can do certain things, which is why the judicial standards cases talk about the scope of a judge's duties. Same with district attorneys. A clerk has a limited responsibility, should have a limited responsibility. So there's no code of conduct for clerks, is there? There is not. That is correct. And there is no code of ethics. However, there are generally governing ethics standards. And of course, Ms. Chastain confirmed in her testimony that she understood what was expected of her. She'd been a clerk and a deputy clerk for a long time, and she understood what we expect our clerks to do and not do. So, so I guess from just kind of sum up what you're saying, you have to look at the particular office to gauge what egregious conduct may be. I mean, is that is that fair to say? That, that's exactly right, Judge Gray. Okay. For example, a clerk cannot um, make accept a bribe in exchange for a sentence. Right? The clerk has no responsibility over sentencing, so there's no responsibility there. The question of whether a clerk could do that just wouldn't come up. A clerk is responsible for maintaining funds for upholding the dignity of the system, right, for those types of things. So within her office as clerk, the question is whether there's corruption or malpractice in that office. And again, that is what the fact finder is left to determine, given the particular nature of 
the acts at issue and the office at issue, whether there's misconduct there that warrants removal or disqualification from office. This, my friend on the other side mentioned several times um, that we have their facts. So I, I believe he was referring to their facts, meaning facts in favor of the affiant appellee. But of course, they're not our facts. These are the facts made by Judge Locke sitting as the finder of fact. There's no, this is not a summary judgment case where we're taking inferences in light most favorable to one party or the other. The question on appeal is whether the findings of fact that were made were supported by the evidence and whether the conclusions were supported by the findings. So procedurally, this is akin to other cases where judges have to make difficult determinations. For example, a, a petition for termination of parental rights. In those cases, district court judges have a really hard job. They have to consider all of the evidence and determine whether it meets a high standard. And assuming termination is entered and an appeal is taken, the question before the appellate division is not whether those judges or justices would have made the same decision or whether they agree with that determination. The question in those cases, which is very well settled, is whether the findings of fact are supported by the evidence and the conclusions are supported by the findings. The same is true here. In fact, this argument was the first I had heard that Ms. Chastain's position is that this entire issue is reviewed de novo. Um, in fact, in the appellant's brief on page 22, they laid out the same standard of review that the Afian appellee is asserting, which is, are the findings supported by the evidence and are the conclusions supported by the findings? So that is the appropriate standard. <clears throat> Again, the purpose of the remand was to decide whether the evidence that had been presented rose to the level of willful misconduct that was egregious in nature and therefore corruption or malpractice in office. It was not a, there was not a new evidentiary hearing, there were not new allegations presented, it was simply an application of the legal standard. There's no question here that Judge Locke used the standard that had been set forth by this court. So as long as the findings are supported by the evidence and the conclusions are supported by the findings, this court should affirm. Unless the court has further questions, we would ask that you affirm the trial court's order. We'll have a question. So none of the allegations in the petitions allege that any respondent's conduct was knowingly and persistently repeated. They, they allege separate acts and separate instances. So how then does the evidence based on the allegations and the affidavits support a finding and a conclusion that the respondent knowingly and persistently repeated conduct prejudicial to the administration of justice? So Judge Wood, as you pointed out, Judge Locke did make that specific determination, right? In page 160 of the record, he said, her knowing and persistently repeated conduct prejudicial to the administration of justice itself rises to the level of willful misconduct, which is, of course, taken right out of the judicial standards cases. So I would respectfully disagree with um, my colleague that the same act has to be repeated. The phrase is knowing and persistent repeated conduct prejudicial to the administration of justice. In other words, if there are multiple acts that are prejudicial to the administration of justice, that would be something that is knowing and persistently repeated. There is not a single case cited by the appellant that says the same act has to be repeated more than once. 
And of course that can't be the case because something really, really bad that's prejudicial to the administration of justice would not need to be repeated more than once. Well, it wasn't in Ray Peoples, wasn't it? Certainly, there are cases in which it was repeated, but if the clerk is sexually assaulting someone in the courthouse, that act would not need to be repeated more than once in order to remove him or her from office, I would suggest is the law in North Carolina. There is simply no basis, and I'm not aware of any case that has said the same act has to be committed more than once. Of course, this conclusion that Judge Locke made was even if respondents' acts of misconduct viewed in isolation do not constitute willful misconduct, so even viewing each instance on its own, if that was not enough, her knowing and re persistently repeated conduct prejudicial to the administration of justice itself rises to the level of willful, willful misconduct. In other words, viewing all of the acts together, all of the evidence that was presented at the hearing, that constituted willful misconduct. It exhibited a pattern of repeatedly overstepping her bounds as clerk of court, trying to interfere with ongoing civil and criminal proceedings, trying to interject herself, trying to overrule determinations that had been made by judges, simply veering out of her lane as a clerk of court, all the while not handling the funds that she was in charge of within the clerk's office. So that was the knowing and persistently repeated conduct that Judge Locke was referring to. Well, there was no evidence of misappropriation of funds or embezzlement or corruption from the audit. They said that lack of training for her employees and oversight, isn't that right? I would respectfully disagree that it just said lack of training or oversight. It said that funds were mishandled. There was no um, finding of embezzlement, that is correct, but there were findings that funds had been mishandled, that funds that were supposed to go to minors and incapacitated persons had not been transferred, that the documentation was unclear in money that had gone out of the clerk's office. So there were findings by the audit that funds had been mishandled, um, even if not stolen by the clerk. Thank you. What's up? Thank you. All right. Mr. Blue, we've got some time remaining for rebuttal. Yes, thank you. Um, of course, there were no funds misappropriated, embezzled. Um, the finding of mishandling of funds, no funds were missing whatsoever. In the instance of the minor, if, if the court reads this audit report all the way through, in the instance of the minor's funds, just simply a mistake was made where not enough of the minor's funds were dispersed to the minor. All those funds remained in the clerk's account. Um, by Judge Locke's own order, the only problem with the audit that he found, his conclusions of law, were that her lack of oversight uh, he concluded rose all the way to the level of being guilty of corruption or malpractice, where N. Ray Knoll from our Supreme Court tells us that negligence, lack of oversight, lack of diligence, that can never even rise to the middle tier of willful misconduct. Very quickly, Your Honors, the sufficiency of the evidence point, um, Mr. Nelson mentioned that the uh, intro paragraph of Chastain 1, um, and each time that um, my colleagues mentioned this, they seem to mention only the first part of this court's sentence here, where it says, though there was evidence in the record that, that could support his decision, comma, and then there's the rest of this sentence. Um, 
first of all, this sentence is, is dicta, but the rest of the sentence reads, Judge Locke erroneously based his decision in part on acts by Ms. Chain, Ms. Chastain not alleged in the affidavit or which do not rise to the level of misconduct, much less the middle tier of willful misconduct. There may have been evidence upon which he could find misconduct or evidence that wasn't even charged in the affidavit, but that's what he based his decision on. If the evidence showed that she was, should be adjudged guilty of corruption or malpractice, that legal determination is the de novo review here. This court in Chastain 1, if it found that the evidence was sufficient to warrant a, an adjudication of guilt for corruption or malpractice, absolutely had the power under their de novo review to say it, conclude it, and this case would be over. Instead, they sent it back down to Judge Locke, uh, which I would contend shows the opposite of what my colleagues are arguing. Um, up to the fact finder, Mr. Nelson said, this is just up to the fact finder, that's the standard. Well, actually the standard here talked, this is from our Supreme Court in N. Ray Hill and N. Ray Badgett removal cases. It's not on the factual side whether there's just some competent evidence in the record. It is, Judge Locke's findings in this order are not binding on this court unless this court determines they are, quote, adequately supported by clear and convincing evidence. And I would, I would submit to your honors these two cases, N. Ray Hayes and N. Ray Martin. Hayes is 2002 and Martin is a 1978 opinion. What were, what, who was being removed in those cases? Judges, both are, both are superior court judge removal cases if memory serves. Superior court judge removals. I believe so, yes. Is that, um, is that before they were districts or was that statewide elected? You know? That I don't know, um, but I believe they're both superior. They're either superior or district court judge okay. removal cases. But in both of those cases, this North Carolina Supreme Court, following the the re factual review standard that I just quoted, concluded that the presence of conflicting evidence in the record was enough to say these findings are not supported by clear and convincing evidence, and and removal was not warranted. Which your your judge would your question can can they cite any case? where lesser forms of conduct warranted removal of any judicial official? The answer is, of course, no. There are, however, by my chart that I have made of every single removal case ever published in North Carolina, there are 18 cases of uh, questions of removal where the conduct at issue was worse than Ms. Chastain's by anyone's assessment that did not result in removal, resulted in lesser forms of sanctions that were available, such as censure, um, lastly, Your Honor, I would say that um, it is incorrect for uh, my colleagues to assert that Ms. Chastain ever modified or changed a court order in the Gaydon-Diaz incident. That is simply incorrect. That is simply false. All she did, they're referencing the filing of Ms. Gaydon's deed in her own court file. Ms. Gaydon brought her deed to the courthouse, filed it in her court files. Undisputed, a citizen can file whatever papers they want, can write or ask to have anything handwritten on them they want, and the clerk cannot tell them no, that would be a violation of the clerk's duties. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you so much, Counsel, for both your excellent arguments. The case is now submitted for our review, and court is adjourned.